May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When was the last time you were at home? Not in your house or the place that you think of as home now, but your hometown where you were born and raised. We all have a hometown, even Jesus. And going home can be difficult for some of us, primarily because we know the people there and they know us. And sometimes when you return, the expectations that come with growing up in front of the same crowd you're trying to relate to now as an adult can be just too hard to overcome. I often think that return visits like this should come with a kind of disclaimer, like the one that financial institutions have to use in their commercials. Past performance does not guarantee future results. (laughs) Growing up, becoming an adult, maybe moving far away, all of this requires change. And sometimes when you come back to the same place where you grew up, All that change is too much for everybody to take in all at once. They're thinking of you as you were when you were the 12-year-old scholar of the Torah, but Jesus is all grown up now. But change is natural and healthy, and if we can embrace it, change is part of our lifelong journey with God. It can lead us into a fuller, deeper, more joyful life of discipleship. Our hearts are made for this kind of growth. We've all heard the old saying, home is where the heart is. I think that's probably meant to remind us that home is not just one place that never moves, that anywhere can be home if our hearts find some rest there, but that anywhere the heart remains restless will probably never feel like home. St. Augustine famously wrote in his journal, addressing God, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless seeking a home, but their true home is found only in God. For Jesus, Nazareth was his hometown. It's the place where he was raised, where his family lived, the place that knew him best. After his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, he goes home to begin the proclamation of the gospel, to preach and teach in the place where his roots run the deepest. But all that time, his heart is attuned to the will of his father, not to the expectations of his earthly family and friends or neighbors. If they were expecting Jesus to be the same kid that they had known when he was younger, the congregation at the synagogue in Nazareth is in for quite a surprise. Now, it seems that Jesus is known to them as a scholar and a teacher, Earlier in Luke chapter 4, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah to read. And as he sits down to teach, he does so because they want to hear from him. The people who've gathered are expecting to hear good things from the local boy made good. He's become a teacher of the Torah, an interpreter of the prophets. And at least initially, they are very impressed. Because Jesus, when he reads from Isaiah is reading about good news to the poor and release for captives, the recovery of sight for the blind, 
the oppressed going free, the arrival of the year of the Lord's favor. Hearing that today this scripture has been fulfilled, the congregation must have been lifted up by a kind of ancient longing. Is the kingdom of God at hand? Is the Lord coming now to vindicate his people? Has the hour finally come? We all love to be told that God is for us, that no one can stand against us, that we are chosen people, God's favorites. That's never going to be an unpopular line of argument. The congregation is rightly impressed with Joseph's son. They love him so much. But then things take a bit of a turn. Reaching back into their shared tradition, Jesus takes things a step further. He is striving, I think, to open their hearts and minds to understand the true depth of God's love, to share with them what grace God intends to share with all the nations. They're asking for a miraculous sign or some kind of incredible feat of power to show them what they've heard that he can do. And instead, Jesus just gives them solid biblical teaching, somewhat less popular than when he was telling them how much God loved them alone. When Jesus opens the scriptures, he moves from reading into preaching. And when he does that, he verges awfully close into meddling. He crosses an invisible line that the Nazarenes have drawn in the sand. But he does not shy away from the truth because to be the Messiah means to tell people the truth whether they want to hear it or not. All the way from Nazareth to the cross, Jesus keeps telling the truth about the kingdom that's coming into the world, hidden though it might be. So Jesus reminds this congregation of the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and then the story of Elisha and Naaman the Syrian. Now they know the scripture. He tells them stories that they already know, that God chooses to save the whole world, that sometimes God uses foreigners to accomplish his purposes, and that if the chosen people of God are unwilling or unable to do what God asks of them, others will be found to be instruments and recipients of God's blessings. This is somewhat less popular than the first half of the sermon. Woe be to preachers who tread too heartily on the feelings of their congregation. The crowd in Nazareth hears these stories as judgments against them, which in some sense they are. But Jesus is also condemning religion more broadly. He came to preach for the sake of the whole world, not just for Nazareth or Israel, and if religion is a sacred space, walled in to protect only one tribe or one nation, then it has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people of Nazareth attending synagogue on that Sabbath day want what religious people often want. They want God to do their bidding. They want a transcendent justification for a long list of bad ideas and scores that have to be settled. They know the scripture which means they know better than to assume that God wants exactly what they want all the time. But the devil who tempts Jesus in the wilderness is also the devil who tempts those who fill the pews on the Sabbath. And what the devil wants is an exclusive 
and divisive kind of religiosity. Not grace, but a religion for each aggrieved and angry group, and for each group to be opposed to every other. But that is not the gospel. Jesus, who may have been the greatest preacher who ever walked the earth, maybe, Nobody likes to be told by some punk kid that God is actually not on your side. That in fact, God chooses to shower love and grace on the ungrateful and the ungodly and the lost. This is especially true because his congregation doesn't want to hear this from Mary and Joseph's son. These people changed his diapers. They watched him grow up. They know his whole family story, murky though it might be. How dare he presume to stand in their synagogue and tell them what God is going to do? Who does Jesus think he is? Whatever kinship and connection they might feel for their hometown hero, it fades pretty quickly. They drag him out of town to try to throw him off a cliff. In just a few short verses, things go from celebration at the brilliance of Joseph's son and his faithful interpretation of the scriptures to a mob of angry people seeking to pull off a first century lynching on the Sabbath. Rather than hear their formerly favorite son tell them anything more about the word of God and the global reach of God's salvation. Now, that's unfortunate for more than one reason. Because the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus is the announcement of good news for everybody, even those angry people in the pews in Nazareth. It's good news for us as well. The gospel means redemption from sin and forgiveness and restoration to a relationship with God and one another. It's a chance to find a home with God, not wandering forever, hopelessly striving to reach for something that remains far beyond us, but finding rest in our Creator. That's the good news that these folks need to hear, but that they refuse to accept. The gospel is, in fact, a worldwide announcement of amnesty and free grace, freely offered to any who desire to receive it, but only if they will repent and believe in the one who proclaims it. And it is not their possession. Now, religious people like that group in Nazareth and like you and I get suspicious about such things because it sounds too easy. Can God really intend that all people be invited into his kingdom? That anyone can just hear the good news and decide to receive it? That they could actually be welcomed in with the same heavenly joy as lifelong believers who've suffered through so many sermons from so many earnest preachers for so many years? Does that Really, is that what God is going to do? Yeah, it is. God desires not the punishment of sinners, but that that they turn from their sin and live. That they receive his grace. Jesus begins his ministry of preaching and teaching by reminding his friends and family and neighbors and you and I. That even though he was Nazareth, born and raised down to his bones, God's salvation is for all people. And that is very good news for us. 
because God calls all people to join his family and to work together to accomplish his purpose. God sometimes has to go and find those people in other places because religious folks who think they know God best of all are the ones who set up obstacles to the work of God in human history. You and I, just like that group in Nazareth, are sometimes prone to trying to police God's grace, to pulling Jesus aside to sort of whisper in his ear and say, Lord, I know, uh, I know you probably know what you're doing, but are you sure? Because some of these folks are a little bit messier and they smell a little bit funny, and I don't know that they know which side to start the genuflection on, Lord. So I just want to be sure that you know what you're getting into before we start to open these doors a little too widely. And then what are we going to do? Are we going to feed all these people at the same time, Lord? Is that the plan? Yes! We get nervous about grace because we're nervous, first and foremost, about ourselves. But we need to remember that our comfortable religiosity is not actually the gospel. Because the gospel is free grace offered to unrepentant, unworthy sinners who have no idea what they need to be forgiven for. That's the gospel of grace. And the God who extends that grace is not our possession. The church is not our possession. God does indeed delight to do better for outcasts and losers and dropouts than any religious insider or elite or church member might actually be able to stomach. Thanks be to God, the kingdom that Christ came to announce is not merit-based. It's not exclusive. It's made up of people like you and like me and like these angry fools in Nazareth who want to chuck Jesus off a cliff. And the only merit that God regards is the one that is offered by Christ. It is his life, his death, and his resurrection that matter most of all. And if we're so focused on receiving what we have earned, we risk limiting our reward to what we can earn. And what we can earn is not going to be enough to save us. And it's not enough to match what Christ delights to give us. The good religious people of Nazareth are not servants of God if they oppose the preaching of grace and the wider embrace that God's love calls for. They were, are not servants of God. If they would rather hurl Jesus to his death rather than hear another word about the wide arms of God's love opening up to embrace all people. The fact is, the scale of Christ's love is so great that it is able to save the ungodly and the unworthy and the utterly lost as well as those who think they don't have anything to be saved from. And that is what makes it grace. Even the best of us are not righteous enough. Even the wealthiest of us are not rich enough. Even the most faithful of us are not faithful enough to earn the gift that Christ has to offer. He offers that gift to those that you and I might not even like that much. To people that we struggle to understand. 
Much to the frustration of that crowd in Nazareth, he offers his grace to you and I. I have a, um, a beautiful prayer desk that a friend of mine who is a skilled carpenter built for me just about the time that I finished seminary. And I remember seeing one that he had designed and then carved for a friend of mine who's a priest. And I, I pulled his wife aside and I asked her, what would I have to pay to get Bob to carve one of those for me? She was a very wise and prayerful woman. And she looked at me and she smiled and said, you are a poor student and you are entering into a life of committed ministry you can't afford to pay for what that costs to make. But he will happily make one for you as a gift. So it is with God's grace. It is offered to those of us who cannot afford it, who could not buy it if we had to. And by that grace, we are then able to go home to the place where we will find true peace and fulfillment. We will find our rest in God. When Jesus preaches and teaches, his words have an incredible power and authority because he is speaking about himself. He's testifying about himself. He's opening hearts and minds to better understand himself. He's the word who is interpreting the word. So his authority is not like the delegated authority of the Pharisees or the scribes or even of your priest. His authority is definitive and final. And he invites us into a relationship of graceful, life-giving love. He intends that all of us will find a place in his kingdom, a place where we are able to live as part of the love that he extends to us with one another with great joy. And it's possible, it's actually even likely, that he has something that you and I can offer to serve this kingdom, a purpose that we can fulfill in the world. And his word, his authoritative word, calls us to find that place to live into that home. By his word and by his grace, no matter who we are or where we come from or what we have done, we are indeed able to find ourselves recipients of that free gift at home at last with God. Amen.